Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and today I'm speaking with Jane Allison, whose new book, Meander Spiral Explode, is out now from Catapult. Jane is the author of a memoir, The Sisters Antipodes, and four novels, The Love Artist, Marriage of the Sea, Natives and Exotics, and Nine Island, and is also the translator of Ovid's stories of sexual transformation, Change Me. She is professor of creative writing at the University of Virginia and lives in Charlottesville. Meander Spiral Explode is a first for WMFA, a book about writing. It's an exploration of narrative structure, namely the structures that go against the traditional dramatic arc of rise, climax, and collapse that's so ingrained in our reading and writing brain. Half the fun of reading Meander Spiral Explode is in watching Jane read and seeing the many other patterns that she sees across literature from tight spirals to beehive-like networks. As a reader, I've always been more drawn to books that take an interesting approach to narrative structure, and less drawn to books that tell straightforward stories. But I'd never quite considered those preferences with the question that jumpstarts Jane's inquiry. When plot is not the primary engine, what is moving me the reader along? We talk about that question, and where it leads us as readers and writers. We also discuss the rules we can shake off in our work, what it means to levitate above the text, and how linear narrative arcs are and are not like sex. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which we discuss Jane's reading practice, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. And a quick heads up that we had some technical difficulties on this call at the start, so you'll hear us switch from one recording to another at about four minutes in. That's how sort of ingrained it is, is yeah. that this is what a story is. It should have an arc. And our whole culture talks about the story arc. I mean, you can just type in story arc and you'll get millions and millions of, 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 of cross-cultural responses to it. And I just think it's, I think it's curious. And I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a contrivance. I mean, it, it can be such a narrativization of something that doesn't have such simple lines at all. So I don't, I don't trust it when we speak of it that way, and I, and I just feel so uneasy when people have that sense of obligation to serve it. I was so just, like, excited reading this book. Like, it just really, really made me happy. Um, Thank you. And I, and I want to talk to you about just, like, I, you know, what that, that feeling of just like, it felt there was something very liberating about this book to me. Well, I'm really happy to hear that you feel liberated. Um, one of my grad students actually said the same thing. And a few of them have said that now. And I'm thinking, excellent. That's exactly what I want. I think that I came to this from already feeling a little bit constricted, but it was not because I had studied creative writing, you know, as an undergrad or anything and been kind of, I hadn't had the, the, the narrative arc hammered into me, but I had studied classics. And so I came automatically from, you know, from Aristotle and from the Greek tragedies and so on. And so with those shapes of stories, and I remember writing my first novel thinking uh, that I was, I just felt that I had this form kind of on my shoulders, pressing me into it. And um, I think for that novel, it worked, it was okay. But I, I just remember feeling there is something wrong here. I'm, I am faking something or I'm feeling constricted in a way that I don't want to feel. Um, so it was when I read a lot of other books that really intrigued me that did not have that, that classic shape, that's when I began to realize there, there was another way to go about this that I needed to investigate more. Yeah, it sounds um, like W.G. Sebald's uh, The Immigrants had a, had a really huge impact on you in that respect. 
Oh, absolutely. Yep. Um, it was, it had, they had it, that one had a huge impact on me and it was, it was, it was just genuinely exciting because I was reading it. I was reading it very slowly because I was reading it in, in German because I was living in Germany at the time. Um, and I just was spending half my time trying to understand what is it that keeps compelling me. I know that I am not following any kind of plot. I know I'm reading uh, this book, which is written in these four separate um, narratives. So what, what am I looking for? What am I trying to find here? And then I realized, oh, actually, this is interesting. Most of the movement is going on inside me, not inside the book, so to speak. So it was, it was a matter of puzzling out uh, what it was that was so compelling, what gave that narrative momentum. Um, and that's when I realized, oh, it's because we've got four different parts and there are these similarities and I have to do some puzzle work to see how they all come together. Right. Okay. So um, for folks who aren't familiar with it, which, which does include me, although I'm now on the wait list for it from my library because it, it sounded so up my alley the way that you talked about it. But, but can you talk more about the the structure of the emigrants and what you saw in there that kind of sparked this for you? Oh, sure. So The Emigrants was uh, one of W.G., the late W.G. Sebald's, uh, not, not his first book, it was several in. And it is a collection of four narratives, which he calls in German Erzählungen, so kind of recountings. And each one is about a, a man who is either a uh, uh, German or Jewish or both, who left Germany for a reason, not always to do with the Holocaust, but usually. And um, each of these four narratives is is recounted by a character a lot like Sebald, who goes traveling about Europe and different places in order to to learn more about these men. And the um, and and the 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 book began when Sebald learned from his mother that a beloved teacher of his had killed himself, had had lain down on the train tracks to die. And that was what sparked the whole thing, because he wanted to know what was it that made this beloved teacher, Paul Bereiter, do that. And so he went back to his hometown and 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 gradually found out that Paul Bereiter had been, a, uh, I think, a quarter Jew and had been so traumatized and horrified by what he saw going around him in Germany and had to take part in um, that he ultimately, years later, couldn't take it anymore. And so one of the premises of the emigrants is is that there's uh, traumas that can take a very, very long time to kind of burn their way out and have an effect and make someone do something as drastic as kill himself, which is what I think three of the four figures in the book do. So what happens in each of these narratives is that Sebald is trying to understand uh, what made these men live the way they lived or die or leave, become emigrants and leave Europe. And um, and so you you have kind of a mystery in each case, but it's incredibly slow moving, and he pieces together information by asking um, friends things, by reading letters, by looking at journals, by thinking, by walking, by looking. And I realized that um, there was an, an, an kind of an image or a character that turned up in each one, which is what Sebald calls the butterfly man. Mm-hmm. And in the first case, he's something like Nabokov holding his butterfly net. There's actually a photo of Nabokov in the book. And in one of the other narratives, it's a little boy collecting butterflies. In another one, it's a man who pops out of the ground in order to warn someone um, that he needs to um, go home soon. He's in, he's in danger. And I began wondering, well, okay, this butterfly man appears in each of them, and he's a kind of like strange walk-on figure. And yet there's something about him that is pulling all of these together, and I need to figure out what that is. And then I will begin to have a larger key for the book. So that is, uh, so just reading in this way and realizing that I was thinking more about pattern and images and how they were linking, uh, this is what made me first realize that there were really truly exciting and and profound um, and realistic as well ways to create movement and narrative beyond plot. Right, right. And I love that. I love that idea of it, of these 
experiences and these pains kind of taking time to burn their way through. Um, and, and the book does come up, you know, in, in your book, um, you dive into each of these different patterns separately, but, but several things come up a few times and this is one of them. So what, what did you end up kind of finding was the, the pattern in there? <laughs> well, the, so in that one, the pattern was um, because there are these four separate sections and because I needed to read across them in a way. So it's kind of more like looking at a field mm -hmm. and trying or looking at a map and trying to see everything at once, having a kind of more spatial sense of, of a book rather than being caught up in a linear, this happens and then this happens and then this happens. So um, in terms of the patterns that I'm looking at, it's more like a cellular or a network pattern where you are not um, given, you know, a kind of single line to follow. You end up having to read the whole thing and then you're sort of levitating above it, looking back down at it to see what sense you can make of the whole. So, for instance, um, a beehive has that kind of pattern where you've got these repeating shapes and you look at the whole thing. Or when you see, um, say, a lake bed that has cracked that's mm -hmm. dry, you have these kind of, um, you know, separate but equal pieces uh, so not nothing linear at all, but something that's a more overall spatial um, impression. And you know, I think something that was that part part of what made this, I think, such an exciting read for me was um, I've always thought, and and you touch on this the way that you just described the emigrants that you know that question of like, well, what is keeping you along? And 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 I and I often you know I know about myself as a reader that I will if the writing is good and the characterization is compelling, I will kind of go with it forever, even if nothing happens. I always took that to, to understand that I just maybe didn't care about narrative. And then I was reading your book and I was like, oh, I maybe don't care about linear narrative. <laughs> like maybe that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, I, I know, I remember actually when I was a grad student a million years ago, trying to make this argument in one of my papers that um, that I was that that one of the things that could propel you through a narrative was just the sheer beauty of the writing mm -hmm. and and just being engrossed. And I remember getting a little I'm not sure about that response <laughs> from my professor. Um, and and I I think since then I I might I don't think I would agree with him, but I wouldn't agree with my old self either. Sure. I think that it I think that it's just a, it's a matter of length. It's like how long can you sort of string someone along on beauty on beauty of sentences, beauty of language, beauty of images. Because I know that ultimately I want to be able to make something more of the whole than that. And I, I, want, I want to end up somewhere a little bit larger than the experience itself gives me. Right. And that, and that speaks to what you're describing with the emigrants, that idea of the, the, the whole being more than the sum of the parts. And, and that, that additional component is nebulous, but, but is there. Yes, exactly. And I, and I was reminded, you know, in the, in the first pages of your book, this piece of encouragement that I keep on my bulletin board is this interview with uh, the writer Sheila Hetty. And she talks about um, when she first realized that nobody was looking over her shoulder and that like hmm. when she thought that she was in a passage of a story where she thought the dialogue had ended, but she had this like, ob like she felt obligated to continue it. But then she was <laughs> like, wait, I have nothing to say. I have nothing more to say like the person who decides is me and and that's exactly what this is too but it, but we do feel there is this sense of constriction even though as you point out the novel is such a pliable form right i think it's it's interesting i think it's a it's a sense of obligation and it's a sense that there are rules out there that we just haven't been taught yet yeah um I think I, I think I probably felt that way when I first started writing. And I came to writing late. I did I did I did classics. I was a PhD scholar, sort of trying to be. Um, I did visual arts, all kinds of things. When I began writing, and only at about when I was thirty. Um, but 
But I had the idea, well, there are rules, and someone will tell me the rules, and um, I need to know the rules, and then I can do something. And at the same time, whenever I was told a rule, I would just, I would just be so angry. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. I don't. I do not want this rule. And I, I walked by not colleagues here, but colleagues in my life, and and overheard them saying, "Well, it's page one, and there's no dialogue yet. Where's mm. the dialogue?" And I'm thinking, "Well, I can think of many a fine, fine book where there is actually no dialogue at all. I don't think in all of the lover there's any true dialogue, for instance." Um, so I think it's the sense that there are rules that we, we we feel are there, and once we have had our apprenticeship, we'll understand all of them. Um, and I don't, I mean, I think that's, that's a false way to think, and yet I think it's really understandable because of creative writing instruction and the way people talk about uh, stories and novels makes us think that. I mean, you know, you can find a million places that will say, you know, how to write a novel, the 25 rules of writing a novel. Mm-hmm. The, the 20 principles you must follow to write a story. So it's a, it's a kind of anxiety about those things, and in my case, a, a, a desire to ignore them at the same time. Yeah, and I think you point out a really significant kind of dichotomy that, that certainly resonated with me, this idea of, you know, for me, like, it can seem like such a such a huge like the freedom is like too vast almost so then you're like well I I need some I want some kind of container like some kind of prescribed container that I can start to put this in but then you start to get the prescribed container and you're like but I don't but no I don't want that container (laughs) exactly exactly that's exactly what it's like um so so going back to the genesis of this book it, it has a it has a sort of chicken and egg quality in that I'm I'm really curious of just you know once you were starting to think about this were you thinking oh well these are a bunch of books that I love and now I can see these patterns kind of superimposed on them whereas I couldn't see them before or or was it just like well now everything I read I'm gonna have to look for a pattern to like sort of add to this thesis. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I am pretty sure that. I can read books right now and I will not find these patterns in them. I mean, I don't expect yeah. to be able to do that. And I actually expect that a lot of people who read the same books will, will have a different sense of the pattern because mm-hmm. this is a kind of weird subjective thing. Although I, I can make arguments for all of the patterns I'm seeing. But in my case, it was it was reading that Sebald, getting that sense of a different sort of structure. Then I, I had to give a seminar where I used to teach and it was my first time I had to give a, a, a grad level seminar. And I wanted to write, I wanted to talk about different, more extravagant ways of constructing long, long narratives. And I had read uh, Marguerite Joss, The Lover, and as well as the Faye Baldwin and uh, Carol Phillips' book, Crossing the River. And they were all doing something a little bit different. And then I had no concept of this idea of patterns that I have now. That that took 15 years to kind of pop up, mm-hmm. and it popped up out of nowhere, really. And then it was only uh, two years ago when I, I suddenly realized that they had something in common. And then I made the connection to the natural patterns, which I had not ever dreamt of. That was sheer, sheer. That was, I don't even believe in epiphanies, but it was one. It was an epiphany. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and so kind of even before that, were you... Were you, you were still feeling the constriction of the linear, the linear arc? I think I was. Yes, yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't really. I know I had written my first novel, and that had that sort of arc, and I had felt the constriction, but also went with it. I enjoyed 
I enjoy. I mean, I, it, it, it's what that book needed. But right. then writing the next one, I, I realized I don't I don't want that. In fact, I don't want such a limited palette. I want some other kind of shape. And ended up writing something that was more in little little waves mm-hmm. in a way, sort of wavelets. And then the third book I was writing, that that's when I had read The Fables and Carol Phillips Crossing the River. And that was these books that were in big different sections. And I actually tried deliberately writing something that way. So it took so it took a couple of books before I realized I, I really want to write against this. Um, mm-hmm. Not not just as an experiment because I felt like um it, I what I was wanting to write about the, the I don't know, the truth, whatever you want to call it. They they needed a different form. I mean, there was not going to be a big dramatic climactic moment, and then the denouement, et cetera. Right, right. Yeah, and I wondered while um, I was reading if you thought that this was a case of like you need to know the rules before you break them, kind of thing. Like, is you know, do you do you think of these as deconstructed linear narratives or as something else entirely? I don't. I don't. I generally don't agree with the you need to know the rules principle. Yeah. Um, and I and I think one reason for that is because I came to writing not from uh, English literature and not where I mean even in English literature you can you can start without rules, but but from classics and from Latin and Greek and from different kinds of narratives and from um, a time when you have history or even science written in poetry um, or you have narrative mythic story portrayed in pot paintings or in wall paintings. Um, and I, and so there wasn't this sort of strict categorization of, you know, what's a story and what is one kind of poem and what is a novel. There weren't, I mean, there weren't even novels. So I think since I came to writing from these very different ways of looking about what kind of shape could hold what kind of story, um, I didn't have the same sense that there are rules that you need to learn and then you can break them. Mm-hmm. It's as if that came, you know, only in the last few uh, centuries. And I think a lot of people writing in English do come with the sense of, well, there's the novel and there's the novella and there's the short story. And I, I didn't. I came from something that was before that and a little bit more, um, well, just not so, not so categorical. Right, right. How do you feel about kind of novels today? Like, do you feel like it is still a form that's like where people are using that pliability to their advantages or, or do you feel like it is kind of a little stagnant? Well, I don't, I have to admit, I've gotten uh, so that I have a hard time reading a conventional realist novel these mm-hmm. days, mm-hmm. especially when it's the species of conventional realist novel that feels to me that it's strangely borrowed so much from, from, um, blockbuster movie. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, when I, when I, I just feel, I, I have a hard time entering the kind of imagined world where there may be a certain sort of sentimentality or a kind of strong directional signals given to emotion and so on. I just don't have any taste for it anymore. And, um, and, and I think if that's where a lot of American writing, uh, in the mainstream has landed, then that I feel is not very interesting, but there are people doing so many interesting things that are not that kind of novel, like, you know, say the Ida does something new every 10 minutes, as far as I can tell with his books. Um, I think George Norris, um, a European writer, does things that are really interesting and original. Jenny Erpenbeck, also a German writer. So I think there are novels that people are writing that will remind me, oh my God, I love I love novels. I love fiction like this. Right. But it isn't, it isn't conventional realist mainstream stuff. Yeah, and I think that, again, when you are carrying around this kind of unconscious, invisible sense of their rules and their ways that things are done and you stick to them... Um, 
it can be very easy to be disenchanted with that sort of storytelling, but but feel like it's a defect on your part. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I can easily feel dismayed at the state of my own writing or what I'm reading, but then when I find someone who kind of shocks me open again, I mean, someone like Ann Carson and the autobiography of Red, I mean, mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that is so, so wonderfully a novel and not a novel and a poem and not a poem and, and this and a little bit of, of criticism. It's, it's wonderful. And that's the kind of thing that makes me think, you know, I don't even know what the rules are, but whatever, whatever they, whatever they are, she is not following any of them and is making, she's being inventive. She's being novel. And that's what I want. Right. And I think, you know, if, if you're not the sort of person, not the sort of reader, which not, there's anything wrong with this, but I, I don't happen to be, and it sounds like you aren't either that is interested in just kind of like form for form's sake, um, or like in talking about it and kind of being in that sort of looking inward kind of writers on writing sort of way all the time. Um, it, it, it does open that scope up a little bit to say where you can, you can bring these elements in and still maintain like a very real story. Yeah, exactly. In fact, just yesterday in my um, grad seminar here at UVA, it's a nonfiction class, but we're looking at really inventive nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So really inventive ways to be truthful is the way I'm trying to put it. We are reading Paul, uh, no, sorry, um, Edouard Levé's book, Autoportrait, which is, I don't know whether it's supposed to be called a memoir or what, it's, it's a self-portrait. And um, But he's doing the thing where it's just these continuous sentences that are statements about himself that are maybe true or not true. Um, I mean, they, they seem to be to be true statements, but there's no story, there's no real narrative, there are no paragraph breaks that goes on for 115 pages. And so it's, it's truly experimental. I mean, he's really working in the kind of Ulipo tradition, but he, it ends up, I think, being heartbreaking, and it reveals just this, um, this, this uh, unusual but very real and pretty alienated guy. Um, so it's, it's a perfect example, I think, of of, of of giving yourself extreme restrictions and form, but as a way of getting to a real kernel of, of, of human truth. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, coming to, I know you said it, it was a long process where you got to the, the, na- the natural patterns. Um, but I think that's so, it's so helpful for so many. I mean, it's such a, it's so compelling for so many reasons. One of which is that it is a very helpful uh, touchstone to, to imagine these things that, that we're familiar with, but kind of when you saw like, like the wavelets or like, you know, these kind of the rippling effect, the, um, the fractals, like kind of how, how that started to build for you to. Well, let's see what happened was I, I mean, I've been, I've been teaching and talking about these books and stories for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And I knew that I had, uh, I often like to speak of the design elements that can be in narrative. So instead of always thinking about narrative as just a, a temporal art, thinking about it as visual as well, and thinking about texture and, and so on. And I knew that in those um, narratives that I end up using in the book, I had seen these other shapes in them. So for instance, like uh, Garcia Marquez's Chronicle of the Death Foretold, I, could, I really felt like it was a, a circular sort of story. And... The fact that the um, brothers who do the killing end up in um, in a panopticon prison made me think, you know, oh, it's a kind of circular shape with an eye at the center. So I had different structural ways of seeing these different these different novels and stories, but I hadn't um, put that into a framework of natural patterns because I just had not thought about it. It had not occurred to me. But then a couple of years ago, I was 
thinking, I really need to know more about patterning altogether. And I was reading this wonderful, groundbreaking book from the 70s. I mean, so it's an older book called um, Patterns in Nature by Peter Stevens. And he gives this really mind-blowing account of how nature will generate again and again a whole a core set of patterns because there are all of these natural laws that make these things happen again and again. And one is um, a meander, and one is a spiral, and one is a radial or explosive shape. And um, the word fractal hadn't been invented yet, actually. It came out, I think, the next year. Um, but he was talking about branching shape. And I just couldn't believe it because I didn't know that. And I started looking out the window, and all of a sudden, everything I saw, it was true. It was one of these shapes or the other. And and then I realized, oh, my God, actually, these books and these novels and stories I've been examining, I, can, I think I can actually see the shapes that I've found inside of them um, according to this natural system. And... And so it just gave me this um, a kind of a ordering way of understanding how I had been how I'd been seeing the the structures of these stories without knowing there was a kind of larger schema in which that might fit. And then when I did, I kind of retroactively was able to see them all anew. Right, right. And I think the echo of nature um, does suggest that there's so much of this that we can, that we as writers can be doing subconsciously. Um, so I like this idea that that they're from nature and they can kind of naturally evolve out of our work. Yeah, and I can't help but think that there may be, and this may be a stretch, but I'm I'm still working on it. That there may be different shapes within stories that might correspond to different kinds of stories. So I was thinking that the spiral is one that I think I came, I sort of was using myself when I was writing a memoir because I was kind of obsessively going back over the past and thinking again and again and again about certain things. So uh, it may be that you don't even consciously say, oh, I'm going to write a story that takes so-and-so shape. And maybe I'm writing this kind of story. I'm writing it the way I'm writing it naturally. And now maybe I'm beginning to see the way there are certain repetitions or the way it's moving in time that might actually start following a natural shape. And I can exploit that as as I revise and as I think about the whole thing more holistically. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WMFA podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. So much fun of this book is just like watching you read, frankly. (laughs) Like, I just think it's really, it's oh, no. just, <laughs> um, so, so I think that, yeah, that, that, that idea of, um, of it being like a painting or there, you look at it like you're, like you would interpret a painting and where there are these two compressed layers and that idea that, that all of these things can kind of like initially develop just naturally. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, I don't know how it is with you, but when, when I write, um, I know I'm just sort of like blind and going in darkness and just flashing around and putting out whatever it is I'm putting out. And then 
when there's a critical mass, I can look at it and, and, and begin to see in my other part of my brain right. exactly what you just said. So like, where are the patterns? Where are the repetitions? Where's, and I don't know, I think, I think one of the most, well, I know one of the most exciting moments of writing is when it suddenly takes its own, it doesn't take its own life. It, it sort of takes on its own energy and there are all these subterranean logics that you didn't have any idea yes. you had created coming together. And, you know, it's like dream logic and you can, I mean, you, you do not consciously make your own dream, but you are the only one who did. And so when you have had one, you can go back in and examine it and discover surprising, amazing logical connections. And it can be a little bit like that in writing. And then, of course, it's our job to go back and do that looking to see where the connections are and to give it more form and a shape that really is the shape it has to have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I would love to talk more about, and I, and I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but this comes up in the introduction, and then I don't know that it necessarily is stated outright when we start diving into the other shapes, but this idea also of the sexual nature of the linear narrative arc, and especially like the, the kind of masculine sexual experience of the, of the linear narrative arc. Yes. Indeed. Um, that is that comes up in the intro, and I don't really talk about it elsewhere because I guess I felt I had done with it. But it is, it is. I think um, it's a, it is a fascinating thing, and I and it was articulated most clearly for me by this critic Robert Scholes, uh, where he talks about the the natural. And I don't have the quote in front of me, but where he says that the um, the sort of fundamental pattern of fiction is is akin to the fundamental pattern of of sex. And yeah. that is this uh, tumescence and detumescence and this climax and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just thinking, well, you know, that's one kind of sex. It's not the sex I have. Yes. I mean, it is a, you know, a masculine climax-focused, single-barreled sort of thing. Um, and 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 female feminist critics have said, well, no, this isn't really something that applies to us. And this idea of beginning and high point, middle climax, and an end is not something that really works with female experience. And, and that is the art. And um, I, you know, I don't think it's anything Aristotle had in mind when he was formulating, when he was formulating, but, but I don't know. So that is one of the reasons I think I've resisted it. And one of the reasons I was drawn to um, maybe in my second book, this pattern where there are kind of lots of little ripples. And you don't have like the one great big bang. You have lots of little things and sort of smaller quasi-revolutions that don't quite resolve and continue. So part of this was resisting that single idea which I think is masculosexual. Yes. Yeah. Um and I do I do have the quote here in front of me, so I'll just I'll just read it for listeners who haven't gotten the book yet. Um so so this is uh Robert Scholes, is that is that how you say his last name? I think so, yeah. Yeah, Robert Scholes. Um the archetype of all fiction is the sexual act. For what connects fiction and music with sex is the fundamental orgastic rhythm of tumescence and detumescence, of tension and resolution, of intensification to the point of climax and consummation. In the sophisticated forms of fiction, as in the sophisticated practice of sex, much of the art consists of delaying climax within the framework of desire in order to prolong the pleasurable act itself. And then I love you say, well. Is this how I experience sex? It is not. <laughs> well, I mean, the idea of the delaying, yes. I mean, that's yeah, what sure, sure, sure. do anyway, yeah. right? I mean, narrative, like, it always wants to get to its own end, but not yet. Right. But there are so many other ways. But what I think is so, is so yeah. interesting about that, and, and especially when you kind of circle back to this idea of 
those restrictions and those rules that we've all kind of internalized. Um, you know, I, I've definitely had conversations with other women writers when we talk about realizing that we've internalized like male narrative point blank, mm. you know, and, and, and the classics that you're given and that are held up, you know, not to take anything away from their quality, but they are very masculine narratives. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's true. And I have to admit the one thing I was happy about in working on this book is that all the, the narratives I pick, I mean, half of them are by men and half of them are by women. Mm-hmm. And that's just because those are the ones I pick. And, and it's somebody like, I mean, Raymond Carver, who is really good and masculine, who gave me, was I think that was the first case I, I studied carefully of, or where I first perceived the idea of not any kind of, you know, arc and climactic thing, but micro ripples, just these little tiny ripples. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, you know, his stories, there's never any great big change or anything anyway. There aren't great climaxes. But, but so, you know, here is a man, and he is a real man, man. But he was working in a way, at least in that one story that I, I studied, which is um, where I'm calling from, with, with this kind of smaller system of little repeating rises and falls and rises and falls. And then they just sort of, you know, end. Um, so, so I think it's, you know, you don't have to throw out all the male writers. No, <laughs> of course not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, yeah, it just, it, it, putting those two thoughts together did make me think like, oh yeah, there is, um, I mean, it sounds so obvious when you say it, but like so much of this is indoctrinated without you kind of being aware of it. Yeah. Yep. I think so. I really do. And what I, I still don't understand, I mean, I, I see my students every week, I have grads and undergrads and, um, and they, they still do, they, they do speak of the arcs and they speak of the arc as the expected thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I stopped pulling my hair out. <laughs> but, um, I don't know for how long. Uh, and and I don't. And I feel that that is that's how sort of ingrained it is. Is yeah. that this is what a story is? It should have an arc. And our whole culture talks about the story arc. I mean, you could just type in story arc, and you'll get millions and millions of of of, of cross cultural responses to it. And I just think it's, I think it's curious, and I think it's um, it's it's. I mean, it's it's a contrivance. I mean, it it can be such a narrativization of something that doesn't have such simple lines at all. So I don't I don't trust it when we speak of it that way. And I and I just feel so uneasy when people have that sense of obligation to serve it. Right. Right. Uh, I I wonder while we were talking, you know, a, another thing I think that you, in the same vein of of this is such a this is such an understood thing in our culture and in and in the right community this idea of the arc is similar to that is like the hero's journey and and i wonder if you think if you've thought about that format in regard to to these patterns um let's see not so much i think that may be because i studied classics as an undergrad and a little bit as a grad and the phrase of like the hero's journey um i think they they never came, they didn't really come up when I was studying actual ancient texts. Mm-hmm. It sort of come back refracted through Joseph Campbell and people. Right. Um, and so it actually never really made sense to me, that thing. I was giving a talk with a woman last week, and she was talking about the hero's journey and the heroine's journey. And I, honestly, I, I kind of went a little dead because um, they just seemed to, I don't know, it just, it's sort of formulaic, I suppose. And I guess maybe it's the formulaic that I react against above all. Right, right. <laughs> Um, I really loved, got it to this point, um, this is in the, is in the networks and cells section, um, 
you you say that you're talking about the difference between a, a linear narrative and a spatial narrative. Um, and you say the, the questions a spatial narrative ask are not what happens ne- next, but why did this happen? And more complexly, what grows in my mind as I read? And that really resonated with me too, just going back to that initial question that started you off with the immigrants of like, well, what is pushing me along here? Yes, exactly. And, and the why part, I mean, so the spatial stuff can get a little bit complicated because um, you can be reading something that is fairly linear and still be asking the question, how did this happen? Um, I mean, so that's kind of the first step towards spatiality is not what happens next, but, oh, how did we get here? How did this happen? So like a detective story is spatial in that way, you know, because you're not seeing what happens next so much as what happened before and how are we ever going to find out. But then real spatiality is when there's kind of no sense of anything, of any kind of temporal sequencing anywhere you look. Uh, which is why that they evolved interested me so much because there was never going to be any, any sort of temporal connection between the four different narratives. It was entirely, okay, what's happening in my brain? I'm trying to figure out, you know, what the different connections here are and what the kind of whole enterprise is. Um, and so, so, so I guess my point is just that the, there's a, there's sort of a, a, um, a spectrum of linearity towards spatiality and the space that really spatial is when nothing you can do will ever make any chronological sense of what you've just read. So don't even try. It's more, you're looking at these different rooms and you're trying to see what holds them together and what, you know, what you can make of all of them. Well, transitioning a little bit, I would love to just talk to you kind of more generally about, you know, your writing practice and kind of what you're, what you're working on now, if you want to, if you want to talk about it at all, it's okay if you don't. But, um, um, well, what I'm working on right now is um, all the MFA theses I'm reading. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's that, which is a great pleasure. No, it is. I love them. They're really interesting. But um, when school ends, I'll be getting back to work. And I'm going to work on something that actually begins this book, which was this um, story about this woman, Irish uh, architect named Eileen Gray, yes. and how she designed on the south coast of France that made um, fellow architect Le Corbusier absolutely crazy. And it's a book that I that's based on it's it's, a, it's true it's this is historic stuff and I started writing it years ago and I never I never got it right I never liked it and I've I've decided I'm going to get it right so that's what I'm going to work on now is is this narrative about um, these two architects and this sort of strange rivalry sexually charged competitive thing that was played out in this one space on the south of France. Oh yeah, that sounds fascinating, and I love this. I love that it um, that it's been it's been around in the world for a long time and you're, and you're, and you're able to come back to it. Yeah. I hope I can do it because it really drove me crazy for a couple of years. And this, this, um, I've had it. I really want to get it right. <laughs> and one of the things that, um, when I had finished writing it, I, I, is, this is, I was having a kind of crisis where I was tired of, of content of, of fiction, the way I was describing it, where you have this, you know, other world and you want people to enter it and you're trying to make them believe thing, you know, the whole suspended reality thing. Um, and I I was having a crisis between writing fiction and nonfiction because I'd written a few novels and I'd written a memoir and I'd done some translation at that point. And I realized I was having a hard time coming back to that sort of conventional realistic fiction after writing a memoir and translations. So I, I sort of couldn't do it. I just couldn't get it right. I just couldn't, I couldn't fake it. And that's what I felt I was doing. So I wrote another book, which was a, a nonfiction novel, I called it, um, as a way of sort of going into the next territory I wanted to try. 
But now I'm ready to go back and, and try and re-enter the world of uh, either realistic fiction or make this a real hybrid of fiction and nonfiction. And I don't know which it's going to be. Nice. I like that. And I like this idea. Um, I just like, I like to think about um, projects as kind of having ages and, and having <laughs> moments of time that are the right time for you to, to be engaged with them. Um, kind of to completion. I think about um, having, I, I saw Colson Whitehead talk um, a year or two ago and he was talking about how he had the idea for Underground Railroad a long time ago, but he was just like, oh, I'm not a good enough writer for this yet. And just, oh, wow. it. yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. But that, that's absolutely true because there are some things, I think probably something like memoir is a really good example of it too, because there are some memoirs that you just cannot, you cannot write until uh, more time has gone by. I mean, the thing has got to sort of sink into, it's got to go, you know, a few feet underwater before you can see it clearly, I think. Um, I, I know in the case of my own memoir, I, I had to wait until quite a few years had passed and certain things had happened before I could actually see the whole form. You know, you just can't do it when it's too close. I mean, we all, we all are taught that in our workshops and we don't really believe it, but I think it's true. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, you know, I, I write, a lot of my writing is focused on place and I feel, you know, and I'm from Appalachia and I write about the region a lot. Yeah. I'm from West Virginia originally. And, um, and I definitely had not only had to leave to be able to see it clearly, but had to leave to even be interested in it in my case. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, that's true. So what happens when you leave it and then how, how is it that you're able to be more interested when you're, when you've left it? I think as it really made me think about like once you're kind of presenting yourself to people who don't know where you're from, but have ideas about where you're from, which is also not even really a concept that I had thought about. Um, and you know, often they're stereotypical and often they're negative, but, but just mm. any sort of like preconceived notion, then it really does make you think like, Oh, what is like, it just made, it made me examine the place. Um, I think more, much more on its own terms instead of saying like, well, I think it's this and I don't want that to say like, well, uh -huh. is, it all, is it all of those things? And, and what does that look like? And uh, it, I don't know, it just kind of sparked um, a, a lot of self-inquiry. And then I, I came to find that I believe that place and identity were like two very, very connected ideas in my thinking. No, I think that's really interesting, and it's it's making me think of this um, one idea I, I came across in writing this book, which was the distinction between two kinds of spatial knowledge we have, and one is called egocentric, and the other is allocentric. Mm. And egocentric spatial knowledge is they how you know your way around a city because you can remember that if you're standing at this corner, you can see left, and there's you know the so and so building, and you can look right, and there's the park, and that's so that's um, a kind of eye-based knowledge of mm -hmm. space. And then aloe, is, it's like you've levitated and you're able to look at everything from above. And instead of like remembering how things were based on where you stood, if you can see, oh, there's the park and it's a little bit south of that building and over to the left is the so-and-so. So it's like, um, it's just kind of an inversion of, of the point of view. So from being the eye in it to being one that's above looking down in a way. And I think that happens with memory too. And it sounds like it happens when you leave a place because you're no longer like embedded in it. You're able to sort of see it from that remove. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to I'm going to look more into that for sure. Um yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true and I love just in general, you know, that that's some that that word levitate comes up in the book in a way that I really that really was compelling to me this idea of the reader levitating above the text and kind of seeing seeing that layer, seeing the kind of map of it. Yeah, I'm glad. I hope so. I think I kind of think it's I mean it's it's a it's a figure, I mean it's a metaphor, but I do I kind of hold on to it 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, this sounds seems like a good time to um, start to wrap up with a question that I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Mm-hmm. What does creative satisfaction look like for me right now? Yeah. Hmm. Um, I have to tell you, my first answer involves the garden. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> it just does. <laughs> uh, maybe because it's spring. Um, uh, so I don't know if that's the kind of answer you want, but it is being able to make something um, with the help of people um, that has beauty and organic life and is, and is um, I don't know, wholesome where there was dirt. <laughs> I like that a lot. The um, compost comes up again and again in conversations about writing, I've found. So, so the, the, the garden metaphor seems very perfectly apt to me. Love it. Well, that sounds like a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much for taking the time today and bearing with me through the technical difficulties. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And likewise, I'm sorry I had him on the front. No worries. Hey, nice talking to you. I yeah, appreciate you, it. You as well. Thanks. Okay, bye. Today's conversation was edited by Jenny Casas and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.